salvation. We come into your presence today with thanksgiving, with our praise, with our worship, because you are our great God and our great King. You rule over all creation, and you rule over us since we are part of your creation. Lord, would you motivate and empower us to want to worship you, to desire to worship you more joyfully and more passionately and more fully because you alone are our God. And we want to be enamored with all that you've accomplished for us, Lord Jesus, and your life lived on our behalf and your death died on our behalf on the cross for our sins in our place. And in in your resurrection, you've earned salvation for us. You've made a way for us to know you and be made right with God. And may we worship you in response to all that you've done for us. Keep us away from allowing our hearts to be hardened. Prevent us from allowing our hearts to be hardened against you, from wanting to hear your voice speaking to us. Would you protect us from spiritually drifting or spiritually going astray and, and looking to God replacements to satisfy our hearts that will not satisfy our hearts? Prevent us from ever sort of getting to that place where we don't want to hear from you in your word anymore, from the Bible. We don't want to read the Bible. Prevent us from ever even getting close to that place of spiritual stagnancy. Lord, we hear your warning in today's passage that those who harden their hearts against you will not enter your rest, the rest of heaven. And so may it never be the case for us here today, Lord. Protect us from ourselves. Holy Spirit, help me to speak your words, not my own. In Christ's name, amen. today's scripture for us. From Psalms 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as a Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Thank you very much, Rosalie. Today we are continuing our summer sermon series. It's all about summer in the Psalms, and we're looking at basically Psalm 90 to about 107. And uh, we're ingesting this Psalm 95 today that Rosalie read for us. The title for today's message is, 
Rebellion ain't worth it. Worship is. Rebellion ain't worth it. Ain't, ain't a word, right? I mean, but anyhow, I used it. Rebellion ain't worth it. Worship is worth it. That's the main idea, the big idea that we're lo- looking at in this psalm. This is very, very helpful stuff. And to set things up, let me just uh, get personal with you. I rebelled against my parents in my teen years. By the way, if you're a teenager, please do not assume that you have to do this. Please don't rebel against your parents, unless they are just really crazy, wild. I don't know. That's a whole other sermon. But I rebelled against my parents, and I should not have. Something snapped in me, though, at age 14, and I felt like I just couldn't take it anymore. I I resisted this idea of, of submitting to my parents' authority. And so what I decided one day at age 14 was basically this, nope, I'm not listening to my dad, I'm not going to listen to my mom, I just can't take it anymore. Maybe it was the, the band Twisted Sister, their song, I, We're Not Going to Take It Anymore. Maybe that was my theme song for that period of, in my life, and I'm going to go my own way, as Lenny Kravitz sang back in the, the 90s, I think it was. And anyhow, so I just sort of, I decided, you know, that's it, I'm just, I'm done. I'm my own authority here. I'm going to lip off my parents, I'm going to lip off my teachers, I was quite good at it actually, and, uh, and as it turns out, I also quit the church's youth group because I didn't like the youth pastor at the time, and my parents let me do that, I'm not sure why, but I quit youth group, still had to go to church, but anyhow, I just decided I don't care, I don't care what anyone thinks, I don't care what my parents think, I don't care what God thinks, I don't care about anything but myself, I only care for me, and I am going to do what I want to do. It was the way of rock and roll, and I was all about rock and roll back then. Bad idea. And the results were daily arguments with my parents, daily tension with my parents, daily disrespect shown toward my mom and dad. But here's the thing. Was I justified in my rebellious behavior? Was this a good idea? Was I right to treat the two human people who loved me most, who provided for me most, who cared for me more than any other set of people on earth? Was I right to treat them this way and harden my heart towards them in this way, even though they are very imperfect parents? What's the answer? Answer is no, of course not, right? I mean, how could I treat my mom and dad this way, who treated me, by and large, mostly with love and with grace and compassion and daily provision? Here's my point. We're all kind of like rebels, actually, like rebellious kids when it comes to our Heavenly Father. We've all rebelled against Him at some time. Maybe we're in the midst of rebelling against Him right now. I don't know where you're you're at precisely, but the Bible's clear. Romans 3.23, all have sinned. We've all rebelled against our holy God. We've fallen short of His glory and His perfect ways. By the way, to treat God this way in a rebellious kind of way, it kind of takes a lot of courage and intestinal fortitude, if you think about it. A lot of illogical guts to rebel against God because no one loves us more, no one has provided for us more, no one has been or is offering to be more gracious and forgiving and merciful to you for your sins committed against him than the God of the Bible. And so that is why my thesis for today is simply rebellion ain't worth it. Worship, however, is worth it. There's no upside to rebelling against God. There's no good that comes out of rebelling and resisting God. And on the alternative side, there's nothing but good that occurs to you and with you and in you when you decide to worship joyfully uh, 
with to God, worship God with all of your heart. And that's what we're going to look at. We see this idea in our passage. And in our passage, more specifically, we're going to see uh, three very compelling reasons why you and me should and must worship God with everything we have. And secondly, we're going to look at three horrific results if you choose to rebel, kind of like how I rebel against my parents, if you choose to rebel against the lordship and the kingship of Jesus in your life, there are three very horrific very sad results of that sort of approach to God. All right, let me give you a quick overview of this Psalm 95, and this Psalm can be categorized as an historical Psalm. Basically, this Psalm is a bit of a history lesson, and I love history uh, because you can learn a lot from history, and the idea of learning from history is, is what? It's so that you don't make the same mistakes from those before us, right? That's the benefit, the great benefit of history, and that's what Psalm 95 is kind of doing. It's giving us a bit of a history lesson saying, don't do what they did, all right? So that's why this is a historical psalm. There's a history lesson in it, what not to do before the Lord and also what to do before the Lord. It's that kind of thing. And in short, what we're going to see here in this psalm is that right living flows out of right worship. Let that stick, hopefully, in your mind and in your heart. Right living flows out of right worship, okay? They're inextricably connected. Right living, right worship, they go together. All right, there's the overview. Let's drill down on verses 1 through 7. If you have Psalm 95 in front of you, that is helpful. I encourage you, whether it's on your insert or on your Bible or on your phone, and what we see in these first seven verses, the psalmist, the writer, is making a very passionate plea. There's passion dripping from this psalm, and he is passionately begging God's people, you and I, to worship God with everything we have. Can, can, you can see the passion, and he says, oh, come, let us, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to him. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let's sing songs of praise to the Lord. I mean, again, it's just dripping with passion. He is confidently instructing you and I to worship God with just all kinds of energy here. And very quickly here, what I want to do now is shift a bit and do a bit of a a doctrinal study of what worship is or corporate worship. We're going to look at big worship and then more specifically corporate worship under big worship. And this is a theology of worship. Why are God's people called to worship God? And the first thing about worship is this. Um, Worship can be defined as ascribing worth to something. Ascribing worth to something. I am enamored with this object of worship because of their greatness, because of their goodness, their, their beauty, perhaps their, their character. And this is what we do when we worship God. We ascribe worth. We say, you are worth most in the universe. You are the highest person in the universe. And I ascribe worth to you. You're the greatest. You're the most powerful, the most beautiful, the most loving, the most gracious, and the most forgiving person in the universe, how can we not ascribe worth to a person like that? And while the Bible is clear, you know, all of life is worship. Have you heard that phrase before? Biblically, that's what the Bible's message is. All of life is worship. And we get this idea uh, from 1 Corinthians 10.31. It says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, so it covers off everything that we do, do all to the glory of God. So how you treat your spouse, hopefully 
in an Ephesians 5 self-sacrificial way, that's an act of worship. How you treat your kids as you try to and do your best to, with God's power, uh, treat them as our Heavenly Father treats us, well, that's an act of worship, you see. So everything we do, now we do that very imperfectly, do we not? We all fail every day, I do. But that is what all of our lives are to be like as a follower of Jesus. So that's all of life is worship, is an act of worship towards God or should be. But more specifically, what I want to do is now look at corporate worship, what we do here on Sunday mornings, all right? And this falls under 24-7 worship. This is sort of like Sunday corporate worship. And here's a good definition of corporate Sunday worship from Wayne Grudem, who says this. He says, worship is the activity of glorifying God in his presence with our hearts or with our voices and hearts. Worship is the activity of glorifying God in his presence with our voices and our hearts. Let me share with you now three great benefits of Sunday morning worship. These are the things that happen in you and to you when we worship God here on Sunday mornings with God's people. The first benefit is simply this, is when we increasingly delight in God. We delight in God. That's what worship helps you to do. God created you and he created me to not only glorify him, but to actually enjoy him. Can you imagine receiving most of your enjoyment in life from God himself? That's what he offers us. And that's what worship helps us to experience. The more and more and more that you worship God, you'll find yourself delighting in him more and more as well. Look at Psalm 73, verse 25. It says, Whom have I, sorry, I can't talk. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. And it is amazing. The more that you worship God here on Sunday mornings with God's people, the more you find yourself wanting God, desiring to to praise him, just desiring him for who he is in and of himself. You want more of God. And that's what Sunday worship helps you to desire more and more. You delight more and more in him. Another great benefit is that God delights in us when we sing songs to God on Sunday mornings. Think about that. God delight, he's delighted when he hears us singing like we just sang already this morning. And this is amazing to think about. As he sees us here singing to him, singing these great words to him and raising our hands to him, he, he, it's like a father with a child taking delight in, their, in that person, in that child. He takes delight in us when he sees us experiencing joy in him and expressing our delight in him and seeing perhaps glad faces. Some of us are more expressive than others. I look like I'm the person that is unexpressionless most of the time. All right? You think I'm mad all the time. That's what people say about me. Are you having a bad day? Having a bad life? No, I'm smiling on the inside. All right? And God sees that, fortunately. But there's something about that actually brings honor to God. And, of course, God can see our hearts and what's really going on within us. He rejoices. Did you know that God rejoices over us with gladness? That's what the Bible says. You can check it out on your own. Isaiah 62, verses 3 to 5, and Zephaniah, verses, uh, chapter 3, verse 17. I'll let you explore that on your own. That's the second benefit is that God delights in us when we worship him corporately. And a third benefit of corporate Sunday worship is this in your notes. God ministers to us. He ministers to us when we worship him here on Sunday mornings. He is caring for us. He is serving us. He is helping us when we worship him. 
All right, the primary purpose of worship, yes, is to glorify God, get our attention onto God, get our thoughts onto God. However, as we get our thoughts onto God and we delight in Him, something happens perhaps somewhat passively inside of us as we're singing words of praise to God. In that moment of praise towards God, singing songs to God, you and I, at the same time, are being spiritually strengthened, are being spiritually built up. We are being spiritually fed by God himself. So worship on Sundays is a spiritually strengthening, sorry, it's a spiritual strength-inducing thing for you and I to do. James chapter 4, verse 8a says, draw near to God, and what happens? He will draw near to you. You draw near to God, he's going to meet you right there in that same place. That's really cool. That's one of the best things to think about, that God would draw near to me, despite all that I've done against him. And he will do that because I'm in Christ. Then look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 to 20. It says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's point in these three verses is that there's a, a connection between being filled with the Holy Spirit, not being filled with alcohol. He's saying, that's just a dead end. That's debauchery. That's sin. No, be drunk, if you will, with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a connection between being filled with the Holy Spirit and corporate worship on Sunday mornings. There's a connection. All right? And by the way, being filled with God's Spirit is not limited to just Sunday mornings here. However, one of the ways that God makes you stronger spiritually and fills you with his Holy Spirit is when you gather here with God's people on Sunday mornings. If you're, you're sort of like feeling like, God, where's God? And I ask God to fill me, and I ask God to take control of me, and it's just like nothing's happening. Well, maybe the missing piece is not being here enough to be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is an important piece, important part of being filled with God's spiritual strengthening and encouragement and edifying into your life to help you grow in Christ more and more and experience more delight in God. All right? So there's the brief theology lesson about what worship is and what worship, the great benefits that worship brings to you. Let's get back to our passage. And point number one on the insert is this in your notes. Let's joyfully sing our worship praise and thanksgiving to the Lord and bow down to him because let's joyfully sing our worship praise and thanksgiving to the Lord and bow down to him because and we'll look at three reasons why we should worship God in this way so why bother worshiping what are the grounds for worshiping the Lord and the first reason why we need to worship God in your notes is little a he is and this is from Psalm 95 he is our great king over and above all gods He is our great king over and above all so-called gods. We see that in verse 3. Verse 3 is all about showing us that no one supersedes, no one is over and above the authority of God, our ultimate king. And so God, our king, is higher than the world's most prominent CEO, such as Apple's Tim Cook, Google's Sundar Pichai, Amazon's Jeff Bezos. God is higher than all of those CEOs. God, our King, is higher than our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, the Commonwealth's Queen, Elizabeth, America's President Trump. God, our King, is higher. 
I love that picture. Furthermore, God our King is higher than all other so-called gods. So he's higher than Krishna. He is higher than Buddha. He is higher than nature, which a lot of people in the West Coast worship. Uh, he made it. How can he worship it? You know, He is higher than Muhammad. He is higher than the Pope. God our King is highest over all. And if God our King is highest over all, if he is the sovereign ruler of the universe, is this not a person who is absolutely, fully, completely worthy of our praise? Absolutely, in every way. How can we not worship the greatest person in the universe? See what I mean? Just logical. Here's the second reason why we must worship God in your notes, according to Psalm 95, is little b in your notes, is simply he alone is the maker of all things. He alone is the maker of all things. No one else made the universe as we see it today other than God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit together one God, they made everything we see. And in God's hand are the depths of the earth. He's got the whole world in his hands. Made by him. Think about that. God owns the tallest mountains. They, Everest belongs to him. God owns the sea and the oceans. The Pacific belongs to him. God owns the dry land. So even the Okanagan belongs to him as well. Why do they belong to him? Well, because he alone made them. He made Everest. He made the Pacific. He made the Okanagan. And if you make something, you generally tend to own that thing. I've talked about this a lot of times, but this is an important point that we've got to get around our minds and our hearts. Back in the day, for example, I made, I used to really be a little, I thought I was an artist. And the older I got, the more I realized, no, I'm not. Uh, but back in the day, in grade four, I made just before Christmas time. Uh, an artistic creation, and it was a paper mache, paper mache Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I made that. It's not, that's not the actual picture. Believe it or not, someone else on the internet made one a lot like mine. And so it was kind of like that one, except mine was even better. It was even more beautiful. It really was. And when people saw my paper mache Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, they were amazed at how gorgeous it was. And they, they looked at the, the bulbous head of the reindeer and the bulbous body, because, you know, those are balloons that you blow up and then you paper mache around them. And they were amazed at the toilet paper roll neck that it had. And then, of course, the bright red nose on the end. They were just enthralled at this thing. And if anyone, if anyone dared try to steal my red-nosed reindeer, I would have been very angry and very upset. Why? Because I made that thing, and it belonged to me and me alone. No one was going to take that from me. No one. All the attention that was directed towards this reindeer and then redirected to me because I was the maker of it, well, that belonged to me and me alone, right? And since God made everything, all the materials that even made up that ugly reindeer, God made everything. He made you and he made me. He put us all together. Does he not rightfully deserve our heartfelt and our passionate worship since everything is sourced from him. All creation is made by him and by his word. He just spoke it into existence. And if he made everything, he owns everything, and he therefore deserves our worship and our attention. Just logical. There's a final reason why we worship God in our notes. Little c is simply this. He is our God and we are his people who hear and listen to his voice. 
He is our God, and we are his people who hear and listen to his voice. Verse 7 talks about how he is our God, we are his people. You'll hear that all, all around the Old Testament in his covenantal kind of language where God himself, he commits himself to his people and there's multiple covenant commitments, by the way, in the Old Testament, but the general idea is he commits himself to us, his people, and we fail him even so he commits himself to us. He is always faithful to us despite us being unfaithful to him, but his commitment to us, his covenant to us, never fails. That's how gracious and how good and compassionate he is towards us. He is our God, and we are his people, no matter what. And that's why. That's why we joyfully worship him. He doesn't give up on us. He's always with us. I don't know if you caught the word picture in verse 7. You might have that passage in front of you. There's a word picture there, and the, the clues to the word picture are the words shepherd, I think the word sheep, no, sheep and pasture. Sheep and pasture are used there. And the word picture is simply, we are God's sheep. We are in his pasture, which is earth or this church family, if you will. It is clearly implied, therefore, if we're his sheep, he is our shepherd. And what do shepherds do for the sheep? Shepherds are instrumental to the sheep's existence. They can't live for much of any time without the shepherd caring for them. And the shepherd protects the sheep from wolves, from bears, from lions. Shepherds lead their sheep to get the grass, the food that they need to eat, and then the water that they need. Shepherds actually call each sheep by name and can distinguish one sheep from the next because that's how much the shepherd cares for those sheep. They're an investment for the shepherd, you see, and he knows them individually. And over time, the more time that the shepherd spends with the sheep, the sheep are able to identify that shepherd's specific voice. And wherever the shepherd goes is where the sheep will go. They know to listen. they got to listen. For them to be well and good and healthy, they got to listen and obey the shepherd's voice. So they trust the shepherd's voice, you see. And they've learned that if I listen to the shepherd's voice in my life as a stinky, smelly sheep... I'll get the food I need. I'll get the water that I need for, for my body. I'll be protected from harm. The, the shepherd's voice is gold for me. It's, it's what gets me everything I need. And so it is with Jesus. The Bible says Jesus is our good shepherd. How can we not worship a shepherd with, our, with joy? He is our God. We are his people. He bought us. He purchased us. For himself, with his own blood, the shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. And he did that for us on the cross. And he paid the penalty of death for our sins in our place. And after Jesus died on that cross as our good shepherd, he rose up from the grave three days later to save us, to save his sheep. And now anyone who repents of your sins, anyone who trusts in Jesus that he earned salvation for you on the cross and through his resurrection anyone who is baptized into Christ to tell the world that you're now a follower of Jesus, he will save and he will bring you into his pasture and he will take care of you eternally. He'll give you everything that you need to grow spiritually and he will give you the promise of heaven in your future. This is a good shepherd. How can we not worship our good shepherd? Now, let me summarize. Point number one and points A, B, and C, if you'll bear with me. What I hope you get a sense of here is that 
to worship God like we do on Sunday mornings, it is a privilege. It is a gift. And we get to do this in a free country. That is a good thing. Worship is a privilege. Worship is not an obligation. And I pray that you're not seeing worship on Sundays as a big obligation. It's like, oh, do I have to sing? Really? I'm kind of tired. Okay. No, it's a privilege. It's something we get to do. What an honor it is to be able to worship God here together with God's people. And I pray that if your worship feels like more like an obligation, like something you have to do because it's what Christians do, I'm just going to tell you that something is wrong. Something is wrong. Something is wrong. And so what you must do is just simply just show up and just start worshiping. A big part of obedience is just doing it because you know it's right, and then the motivation and the emotion and the passion will follow the obedience. And you'll start feeling joy as you focus in on the words. A big part of Sunday worship is preparing yourself for Sunday worship as well. So Saturday night and Sunday morning before you get here, you're praying, Lord, help me to want to worship you. Help me to focus in on what the words are saying. Help me to be perhaps a little more expressive with my worship to you so that it honors you on Sunday mornings. And so there's a spiritual preparation that needs to happen in you on Saturday night and Sunday morning. Maybe it means going to bed a little earlier Saturday night, right? Getting enough rest so that you're not falling asleep here on Sunday mornings. Maybe that's what needs to happen. And you find that worship, the more that you do it, it becomes less of an obligation and something that is more joy-infusing in your life. You find you, yourself delighting in God. You can't wait for Sunday morning worship the more and more that you do it. Let's move on to the second half of this passage of Psalm 95. It is a bit more negative, you may have noticed. And so that's what we're going to look at. Now, we don't shy away from the negative stuff because there's something there for us to be learned. Uh, when God warns his people, he's actually doing that out of love for us. He wants us to, to be aware that there are consequences for going against what he says. And so that's what we're looking at. This is on the warning side of things. And in the second half uh, of Psalm 95, the psalmist begs you and I to not harden our hearts like God's people did history lesson back in the day with Moses. Just after God, he used Moses to lead his people out of ancient Egypt where God's people were, were under horrific slavery for 400 years. God used Moses to lead them out of that place, all right? And they are then led into the wilderness. And they're on their way to the promised land, but it's quite a distance away. And on their way to the promised land, they have to go through a place that is very dry and is very much a wilderness place. And what is described in Psalm 95 is this history lesson about what happened in, in, at Meribah and Massah. Meribah and Massah is the place where God's people grumbled against God and, and against Moses as well, God's servant. Why do they grumble against God and against Moses? Because it's a wilderness. And in wilderness... Can't, what's the plural for wilderness? Wildernesses, there are, there's pretty much no water. It's a very dry place. They have no water, so they're, they're horribly thirsty. And so now they're grumbling against God. They're complaining against God, complaining against Moses. And you know what they're doing? They're wishing that they were back in Egypt where there was plenty of water, even though it meant them being under slavery. This is what they're saying. Let's, it was better in Egypt. At least we had water and food there. 
Now, you might be wondering, like, Kurt, this sounds a little intense. I mean, water's a big deal. I mean, we all need water to, to survive. I mean, you know, if they're horribly thirsty, can you, you can't really blame them for complaining. I mean, I'd complain too. We'd all complain, probably. But here's the issue. What makes their complaining and their grumbling really unjust and really terrible is because they have just seen, they have just seen God rescue them single-handedly from a, a world superpower at the time. He's rescued them out of the hands of the Egyptians, all right? Then God has taken them through the Red Sea on dry land, through the Red Sea. I mean, if that's not a spectacular miracle, I don't know what is. And they've just seen that. They've just experienced it. They've walked through a sea. That's how God rescued them and got them away from those horrible Egyptians. And so now it's just mind-blowing that they have the gall to grumble against God, despite all the great things that God has done for them. And this puts God's people at great spiritual risk. Great spiritual risk of being disciplined by God, which sure enough happens, and God keeps them in the wilderness for 40 years. That generation dies off before they can get into the, the promised land. It's very, very harsh, but very, that's very just. God has every right to do that. And to bring this home to us today, let's, this brings us to point number two in your notes, simply this, and this is a warning for you and for me, hardening your heart and testing God despite seeing him at work results in, and there's going to be four quick results that we see in verses 10 and 11 here. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to rattle these off fairly quickly. So if you are filling in the, the blanks there, you're going to have to do that fairly fast here. All right, these are the things that happen uh, if you and I choose to harden our hearts and test God despite seeing God at work in our lives and in our church. L little a is this. It risks you being loathed by God. God loathed his people for 40 years in the wilderness because they harden their hearts towards him. You don't want to be, don't risk being loathed by God by rejecting him, okay? B in your notes is simply this. Another result of your heart being hardened is that your heart will be led astray. It will, it will be led astray. Third result is little C in your notes. If you harden your hearts against God, it will result in you not knowing God's ways. You not knowing God's ways. In fact, if you harden your heart against God, chances are very good you, you don't exactly find yourself wanting to read the Bible anymore, right? Why would I want to read the Bible if my heart is hardened against God? I don't want to hear what he has to say for me. That's what ends up happening. And the fourth result of you hardening your heart towards God is ultimately, and this is the worst possible result, is you not entering into God's rest, which is heaven, and rather it will result in you experiencing his eternal wrath. You don't want that. I don't want that. I began today's message by talking about my teenage rebellion and how I, I resisted my parents' authority in my life. And in hindsight, I am so amazed at how patient my parents were with me during those rebellious years, despite my back talk, despite my disrespectful tone, and just my overall bad and ungrateful attitude. And they were gracious with me in the middle of all that stuff. And now, I'm a parent. I'm a dad. I'm on the other side of this equation now. And I think about what I did to my parents, and I'm absolutely horrified at how I treated them. I had no idea how much they had sacrificed for me, day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, 
decade in, decade out, all that they had sacrificed for me, all that they had done for me, I had no idea. And here's what they did for me. They, they kind of made me, then they fed me, changed my diapers, which were many. Apparently it took me a long time to figure that out. They provided for me. <laughs> they provided for me. They introduced me to Jesus and his church. They gave me a love for the local church. They listened to me. And incredibly, I had the gall. I had the foolish idea that I had a right to rebel against them because it's what, kind of what culture told us should happen. Rite of passage. That's nonsense. And only a few years later, in my 20s, after I left home, did I come to my senses and I said to myself, how in the world could I have treated them, my mom and dad, that way in light of all that they had done for me and I apologized to them and they forgave me and so it was all good. Still, I'm ashamed. But here's my point. It's possible for you and I to harden our hearts like a teen rebel. Our hearts to be hardened against God in some way, that is possible our hearts to be hardened against Christ, that is possible. And I think most times, it's a very subtle kind of shift. It's kind of happening under the surface. Sometimes we're not fully aware that this might be occurring in us. And what can cause this hardening of our hearts, one thing that might cause it is if we are not actively worshiping God on Sunday mornings with God's people. Sunday morning worship is a way to prevent that from happening. It's just, there's other things too. But it's one key way to prevent your heart from getting hard towards God. And corporate worship is all about getting our eyes on Christ and being reminded of, of how good he is, how great he is, all the promises he's given us through Christ. So worship together here protects us from ourselves. Worship can prevent us from our hearts being hardened. From, it, it, it helps us... It protects us from being loathed by God, protects us from not knowing God's ways. It protects us ultimately and most importantly from not entering into God's eternal rest in the end. And there's no worse place for us to end up than, than hell. Just, let's just put it out there. There's no worse place for us. You don't want your life to end up there. That's, that's the most horrific thing that can happen to you or anyone. We don't want to end up on the wrong side of God. And so do you hear this warning from God? Hopefully you see this as an encouragement to keep on doing what you're doing. Keep worshiping God. Keep close to him. Just, just, get, just keep obeying him. And, and your delight in him will grow and your passion for him will grow and his, his delight in you will, will grow as well. Keep joyfully worshiping his good name. Never lose sight of how good and great and generous he is to us. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, uh, would you... Just point out in us today, if there is a hardening of our hearts that's going on, if we're not desiring you like we once were, if we're not desiring to read your word and, and have our souls fed by your truth in our Bibles like we once were, if our desire for you, our delight in you is waning, would you make us aware of that shift? It's very often so subtle, but point that out in us. If we need changing would you help us to see the importance of Sunday corporate worship? And would you help us delight in you more through it? That we would be delighted by you more. Lord, help us to see Sunday worship as a source of being ministered to by you as well. 
And help us not to lose sight of all that you've done for us in and through and by the gospel. Jesus, you earned our way into heaven for us because we couldn't earn our way into heaven. All of us have sinned, and it's only your saving action on our behalf that allows us to have a right, good relationship with the Father forevermore. Thank you that through Christ, we will inherit all that Christ has inherited. We don't deserve any of your grace. We don't deserve any of your love. We don't deserve any of your compassion and forgiveness of our sins. And so we are grateful to you, Jesus. We worship you for the gospel. We worship you for being our good shepherd. We worship you for laying down your life for us, your sheep. Keep us near to you. Protect us from ourselves, Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.